0: It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to have the house full. It's good to see each of you, and I trust that as you're here this morning, you are thanking God for the blessings that He's given to you. I was reminded, those of us in our family, in the last couple of weeks that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We have the opportunity to say, Blessed be the Lord, regardless of what He does in our lives. And we have the hope that when He takes our life from us, that He is actually giving us more than what we have here and that's been a hope of our family this past couple of weeks as we uh, contemplate mom's passing into uh, her eternity and to, to the reward that God has given her for her life. So thank you for your faithfulness and not only will you be thanked for your faithfulness later on, you will be rewarded for it. That's a promise of God. How many of you can think of a doctrine uh, of Christianity which, if you would take it away, the whole thing collapses? Think about it a minute. The whole thing collapses without this one doctrine. Anybody? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. So my apologies to Grandview, you're going to hear this again. At the foundation of Christianity are, number one, the concept, the intention, the attitude, and the action of God's forgiveness to us. Let me say it again. At the foundation of Christianity is the concept, which is justice, the intention, which is salvation and redemption, the attitude, which is love and mercy, and the action, which is the death of Christ, of forgiveness, in, of God. forgiveness toward us. Let me expound on that a little bit. The concept is justice. The concept is justice. If there were no justice, there would be no need for forgiveness. If God does not hold us responsible for our sins, there would be no need for forgiveness. If forgiveness wasn't a thing, it is because there was no concept of justice. And we all know what justice is inherently from the time that we're small. When uh, one child does some injustice like stealing another child's candy or toy or whatever it is, there's an immediate uproar because they've been wronged in some way, right? And the concept is that it isn't just or it isn't right for someone to take what is mine. That's just our inherent selfishness, but it teaches us a little bit about justice. And it also then helps us to build on that later on to know how to... to uh, behave toward other people so the concept is based in justice the intention of salvation and redemption that was the reason for God's forgiveness why did we need to be forgiven because of the justice of God which holds us responsible for our sin we have to have some means of redemption because of that justice we have to be pardoned or we have to pay the penalty one or the other We either pay the penalty or we're pardoned for the sin or for the infraction. So the intention of the forgiveness of God is salvation and redemption of man. And the salvation and redemption is only necessary because of the justice of God, which is the concept of forgiveness or behind forgiveness. The third thing is the attitude of forgiveness. Why did God find it necessary to forgive us? Why is that important? It is because He shows us the way, He shows us the meaning, He shows us the attitude behind forgiveness. He didn't have to. We we needed to pay the consequences for our sin. We have trespassed against others, and in so doing, we have trespassed against God. What did did David say about his own sin when he recognized it? Against thee and thee only, he tells God, have I sinned. Wait a minute. Bathsheba's husband's dead, and she was sinned against. And David says, against thee and thee only have I sinned, God. It is at the bottom line that we, we have to recognize that sin is ultimately against God. But it wounds and it, and it uh, uh, is, is perpetrated against other people. Other people suffer the consequences for our sin as well. And ultimately, it is the righteousness and holiness of God that is at stake here when we sin. And the attitude of God is love and mercy. God in His mercy and love toward us said, you sinners need somehow to pay the consequences of your sin. That's the justice of God. The problem is that we can't. How do we do it? Does one good deed offset a sin? Does it undo the consequences of the sin that we've perpetrated? No, it doesn't. We can't undo the wound that we've caused in someone else. We might be able to repay in some way. David Uh, When when he was confronted by Nathan, he said, oh, he's going to pay. He's going to pay fourfold. And he did pay. And he bore the consequences of his sin. But ultimately, those consequences had a cost, or the consequences were the cost of his sin. And God's attitude was love and mercy. He said, you can't pay it, but I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to pay for the consequences of your sin at least in terms of your eternal relationship with me. So that was the attitude of God. So we have the concept which is justice, the intention which is salvation and redemption, the attitude which is love and mercy, and then we have the action. What good is the attitude and the intention and the concept without the action? You know, what what, what do they say? What's the saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And and we all understand that concept. We come to understand that. We also understand that good intentions never really accomplished anything until those intentions were put into action. And that's what God did. He not only had the concept, the intention, and the attitude, but He had the action, and the action was the death of Christ. His substitutionary atonement on the cross for our sins. He paid the price. He bore the consequences. Now that doesn't mean that when we sin now as as believers that there are no consequences. Certainly there are consequences, but the, but the consequences are temporal. They are not eternal. Hopefully. But remember this, we can be such a discouragement to other people as to drive them away from the hope of Christ. Those are eternal consequences, and that's why forgiveness is so serious. That's why God put places such a premium on forgiveness. That's why the underpinnings of Christianity is, is based on forgiveness. That's why it's so serious. Go with me to Matthew, the 18th chapter. In the 18th chapter, we're going to read uh, from beginning at verse 15, and this passage is familiar to us. We read the 18th chapter of Matthew whenever we take someone into fellowship, right? But we do so with the intention that we would extract a promise, a covenant from them that they will follow the precepts, the concepts of forgiveness as outlined by Jesus in this chapter. But I want to read the latter part of this to emphasize some things. So Jesus says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear thee, you have gained your brother. The, the, the idea here is to repair relationships. That is why we approach one another. That is why we try uh, to tell each other of our failures, or at least we, we pretend we're going to, we say we're going to, when we make a promise to the church and to the, and to the Lord. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother, that's the goal. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two or three more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. This is an important concept. I don't need to go into it, but, uh, you know, he said, she said, he said, he said, she said, she said. It's one word against another. So when we take witnesses with us, we establish what's taken place. And justice can be arrived at by separating the wheat from the chaff. Then he says, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And the idea there is that the wisdom of the church is brought to bear on the problem, on the conflict. So that, again, two people can be brought back together who have a rift. There's the goal. By the way, what was the forgiveness of God, do we say? The forgiveness of God was to repair the relationship of man and God. Because of the justice of God, man is eternally separated from Him until that rift is brought back together again. And how is it brought back together? By good works? Not according to our understanding of the Scripture. It's brought back together through the blood of Christ and only through the blood of Christ. So this says, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church... Let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the responsibility of the church to weigh in on these important matters. Again, I say to you, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said, I saith not unto thee until seven times, but seventy times Seven. But he didn't stop there. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. Now stopping, we'll just stop and reflect on that a minute. The 70 times 7 thing, what is Christ saying? He's saying again the load of sin that we can carry, we carry to the cross. And how many times has God forgiven us? He forgave all in one action of Jesus on the cross in shedding His blood for our sins in being the atonement for our sins. So he says, you, when you are sinned against, have the responsibility to forgive as Jesus forgave. 70 times 7? Is that 77 or is that 490? Or does he simply mean it is unlimited? We just continue on. Because God forgives us. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king, which should take account of his servants. When he begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents, an unbelievable amount, something he could never pay. It would be the equivalent today of us who earn average incomes of owing billions and billions and billions of dollars to someone. How he got into that account with with his employer, I have no idea. Not the point. The point is, he's there. The point is, he owes way more than he could ever even dream of paying back. And when he began to reckon, uh, one was brought to him which owed 10,000 talents, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, to pay, and payment to be made. And I would, I would say that they probably weren't worth 10,000 talents altogether. Then the, and the servant therefore fell down, worshipped him, and said, Lord, have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. That's a lie. He couldn't. There wasn't any way he could pay all that back. But what happened? The response was he had compassion. The master had compassion on him. And he loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a 100 pence, a paltry sum, a little bit, something most of us would carry at least in our bank account, if not in our pockets. And he took him by the throat and said, pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And what was his response? His response was, he would not, but went out and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So, when his fellow servant saw what was done, they were very sorry, came and told their lord what was done. Then his lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? This is a a reminder, a very clear reminder to us that the analogy to what Jesus is saying here, or this analogy that Jesus is making, is reminding us that our debt to God was too great for us to pay. We had not the wherewithal to pay it. In what currency are we going to pay our debts to God? In what currency? Are we going to pay our debts to God? Our sinfulness is too great for us to repay to God. And so Jesus says in this parable, Shouldest thou not have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? This is God speaking directly to us through this parable. He's saying, Should you not have pity? on your fellow servant, on your fellow human being, on your brother or sister, because I had pity on you and forgave your sin. And his Lord was wroth, delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. So likewise, so likewise, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every man... His trespasses. Anybody believe what Jesus said here in this 18th verse? Is it serious? Let's read it again. So likewise, just like in this parable... The one who was owed 10,000 talents, who forgave his servant, and his servant refused to forgive his fellow servant a few pence. So likewise, just like that man who was owed 10,000 talents, an immense amount, because his servant would not forgive, he would not be forgiven. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, are we are going to wrap that all up into our theology here and try to tease all this out and get to the bottom of this, uh, how it works regarding Jesus' forgiveness and atonement of sins and so forth and so on? I think there's an answer to this, and I'm not going to get into the whole theology from A to Z. I would just submit to you this fact. If we do not forgive, we do not believe. If we do not forgive, we do not believe. Because the scripture is very clear. We must forgive. That's what this parable is saying to us. There's no option. Forgiveness, like many godly characteristics and action, is difficult For most of humanity. Forgiveness comes easy to anybody? Raise your hand. Forgiveness comes easy no matter what the trespass is against you. Comes easy. Ah, no problem. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Doesn't bother me a bit. Won't lose a bit of sleep about it. Won't think about it. Won't dwell on it. Won't become bitter. Doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy. And I think there's reasons for that. It involves variously our emotions, our sense of justice, right? Our sense of justice, our pride, our sense of betrayal and broken trust. And in about all cases, it's an affront to our selfishness. They have no right to do that to me. I deserve better than that. Somehow, though, we don't turn that on its head and say, I don't deserve the forgiveness of God which is true. I'm the one who perpetrated those sins. I'm the one who brought about those consequences. I didn't deserve the forgiveness of God, but He gave it. What does Romans tell us? For God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Didn't deserve it. Didn't ask for it. Didn't seek it. Wasn't interested in it, but God gave it. Where does that leave us? Our sense of self produces our estimate of our relevance, our rights, and our relationships. Our sense of self produces our estimate of our relevance, our rights, and our relationships. And to forgive easily seems to devalue our relevance, rights, and relationships. Let me expand on that a little bit. Our relevance. We like to think that we're relevant that we're important, that we matter to someone. We don't have to matter to the whole world, but we all seek to be relevant in someone else's life. In our relationships with our husbands and wives, our children, our parents, our uh, friends, our employer, we seek to be relevant, to make a difference, to be valued. That's just inherent in who we are as human beings. We seek that. We want to be valued. We want to have relevance. And to be sinned against seems to diminish that relevance because whoever is trespassing against us is essentially saying, you're irrelevant, you're unimportant, you're nobody to me. I'll run over you. I don't care. So it devalues our relevance. It devalues our rights. We feel like we have certain rights that are based on our value, and because we are are, are a valuable person in God's eyes, surely we should be valuable in everybody else's. So when you trespass against me, you're essentially devaluing that and saying, again, I don't care, you're not important, you're irrelevant, and I don't care about your rights. You don't really have any, like we think of animals. How many of us avoid stepping on a bug? Yeah, bugs are irrelevant. In fact, they're a nuisance. They eat our plants. They spread disease. They do all sorts of things. They're irrelevant to us. Not everybody. But to forgive easily seems to devalue our rights and, then, and also our relationships. Again, when somebody trespasses against us, they're saying, I don't really care about this relationship. This relationship is not important to me. It's not so important that I will stop at stepping on your toes or hitting you on the nose. It doesn't matter to me. You're irrelevant. I find no value in you. And my rights are more important than yours. That is why we get upset, why it hurts when other people trespass against us. To forgive easily seems to devalue all of those things. So it seems to establish this direct correlation between the value or lack of it, of each of these, and the ease with which which forgiveness is extended. In other words, if I forgive you easily, it means that I'm, I'm advocating for your view that I am undervalued. To forgive you easily means that when you hurt me so deeply, I agree with you that I'm not worthy of your respect or honor. That's how our mind seems to connect the ease with which we forgive and the size of the transgression. And so we, we say justice is not served if I easily forgive someone. Justice isn't served, and I am therefore undervalued. That's our view of justice. But God is the most relevant being there is, isn't He? He is the most relevant being there is. He has every right that we can imagine, and He is pure in His relationships. He never betrays. He never fails, and He forgives us. When we sinned against Him, that's the doctrine of Christianity. He forgave us while we were yet sinners. Before we asked for forgiveness, before we had any thought that we valued a relationship with Him, before we had a concept even of what sin was, He provided the way for salvation, for forgiveness, for atonement. So the question is, Where does our sense of self come from? What develops or informs that? Why do we develop these ideas that to forgive devalues us? Where do we develop that? It comes from our sense of self. In other words, it comes a lot from our pride. It comes from our pride. To be wounded by the actions of another places the pain in a certain place. It might be in our physical skin and flesh but it also produces pain in our mind and emotions apart from our will. In other words, we don't will people to wound us. We don't want them to wound us. It is outside of our will. The problem is that forgiveness has to start in the will. And so with the, when the pain is in our hearts and minds, it is our will that has to be the starting point for forgiveness. Because our emotions aren't going to do it. Our emotions say justice is not served by forgiveness. What justice would serve is if they feel the pain that I feel. That's justice. Tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Sound familiar? That was in the Old Testament. And it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And the revelation of what forgiveness is really all about. Forgiveness requires action in the will and at some point healing in the mind and emotions. I don't want to try to divorce the mind and emotions from the will. They are intertwined. We can't separate them and say one goes without the other. They are all in us. Physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. All these things exist. Let's not pretend that they don't. But yet, at some point in time, we have to say... God forgave me, I will forgive others. Where does that start? It starts in the will, not the emotions. And whereas the concept of forgiveness is not hard for the human mind to understand in theory, we all understand forgiveness in theory, don't we? There may be those who have... have, I was reading an article uh, recently which was very interesting. It talked about uh, there was back in 1978, I believe, and I I remember the, the accounts of this. There was a, a busload of school kids and a bus driver that were abducted by three men in california and they and they uh, stopped them on some rural road, out-of-the-way place where nobody would see them, and they loaded them up in a couple of vans, and they drove them to a spot where they had buried a semi-truck underground. And they put this bus driver and these kids inside the trailer that was buried underground and dumped dirt on top of it, and they wanted a ransom of $5 million. They were going to get $5 bucks for these kids and this bus driver. They apparently went away because the kids and the bus driver managed to find their way out they dug their way out of this thing. Uh, the, the police were contacted. They captured the men. The men went to prison. And, and you heard, you saw, this article talked about the reports that came later. Ah, oh, the children are all safe and they're going to bounce back because they're children. They're, they're all going to bounce back. They'll forget about this or it'll be minimized and they'll bounce back emotionally. And there was a, re, there was a, a, uh, a mental health expert of some sort, psychologist, whatever began to follow these children. And they followed some of them into adulthood. And some of them from 1972, they're probably close to my age, or 1978. Maybe a little bit younger than me, but they followed them into adulthood and they're still dealing with the trauma that they experienced then. So let's not pretend that hurting one another isn't something that doesn't last or can't last for years and years. It can, it absolutely can let's not pretend that it doesn't, but the, but the Scripture says, the, the Scripture would indicate that we can find healing in Christ. And I would submit to you that part of that healing comes by placing our trust in Him and knowing that even if bad guys do capture us as children, haul us away in vans, and dump us in the back of a trailer under buried underground, that Jesus has it. That Jesus has this. And regardless of where we go and what happens to us, Christ is Lord and we are forgiven. So, while we understand the concept of forgiveness, it's not hard for the human mind to understand it in theory. Time and experience has proven that it is very difficult, even for Christians, because it is not a mechanical response... Demanded by circumstances, but a response of the will. And it is opposed by our emotion. But it is demanded by relationship and the moral imperative of God. So we have some yin and yang going on here. We have some push and pull. We have blockades. We have walls. We have issues that make it hard to forgive but it's not optional for Christians. Jesus said that if we refuse to forgive, God will not forgive us. So understanding that forgiveness is a requirement brings about two things. It brings about responsibility and it brings about accountability. And they are not the same thing. I had somebody lecture me one time, or a group of us, about the difference between responsibility and accountability. But in short, responsibility means that we have a... a, I can't think of the word that I want in, in this case, but responsibility means that we are aware of this and that that awareness brings us to the point of uh, maturity in recognizing that we have this responsibility. Accountability means that something outside of us is holding us to account for our reaction to it. So understanding forgiveness brings about accountability and responsibility, and it brings about responsibility and accountability to both man and to God. If we love one another, we must uphold both ends, being accountable and holding each other accountable. That is why as a fellowship, we have this, we we extract this promise at the time of our uh, membership that says, if you have a trespass or if... someone trespasses against you, you will go to them and you will talk to them about it. And if they will not hear you, you will take others. And if they will not hear them, you will take it to the church. So for the Christian, how do we accomplish forgiveness? How do we accomplish forgiveness? Theory is great. Love theory. Theory makes it easy to make charts and graphs. Theory means that we can say ABC. Theory means that everything ties up in a nice neat bow and you can tie it off at the end. But then there's real life. So how do we as Christians carry out this accountability and responsibility that we have for forgiveness? I came across a chart when I was uh, studying for this, and the chart... Was interesting because as I considered this, I, I come up with this question: Does this mean forgiveness is only a matter uh, of personality? So I, so look at this chart with me. I'm going to describe this to you. Um, maybe maybe it'd be good if I could project it up here, but I didn't go to that amount of trouble to do this. So maybe you can and and can uh, in your mind's eye. Uh, look at this chart. So this chart is titled, Predictors of Forgiveness, Predictors of Forgiveness. And on this chart, the, the boxes on the left are decreased or a small amount of likelihood of forgiveness. And on the right is increasing likelihood of forgiveness. So the, on the left is small amount of, of probability and on the right, and it's a spectrum. From, one, from least likely to most likely, okay? And, and, and there's four categories that they break it down into. One is personality. The other is relationship quality. The third one is the nature of the transgression. And the fourth one is social cognitive variables. I'll get into that in a minute and kind of explain what they're, what they're talking about there. But the first is personality. Personality. What those what researchers found that made this chart is that the least likely person to... Forgive are those who are selfish and apathetic. Apathetic means awe or not sympathetic, okay? They are not sympathetic or not empathetic people. They are self-centered and they are are apathetic. They are least likely to forgive. Over on the right-hand side, most likely to forgive at the other end of the spectrum are those who are selfless and empathetic. Okay, do do we understand what they're saying here? They're saying there's a spectrum here of least likely to most likely. Okay, and I'm I'm just going to present this to you so that we can think about this for a second. Second thing is relationship quality. On the left, least likely to forgive, over-benefited, over-benefited. I'll explain that in a second. On the right-hand side is heavily invested. Remember, we're talking about relationship. Heavily invested means that you and I have a relationship that I'm well invested in, that I've put a lot of time and effort in, that I value greatly, that I think is important, and I want to pursue it, and I don't want to lose it. That's heavily invested. Okay, folks, think marriage. On the left-hand side, least likely to forgive is overbenefited. I get all the goodies from this relationship. You get none. I'm I'm benefited. I don't have to do anything. You're chasing after me. I'm least likely to forgive. Haven't put anything into this relationship. Least likely to forgive. Third category is the nature of the transgression. This was was interesting. Uh, This is what the researchers put down. The, The discovery through a third party is least likely and the seriousness of the offense, least likely, you're least likely to forgive. On the, on the right-hand side, the unsolicited partner discovery or trivial, trivial offense. So let me break this down again. You're most likely to, to forgive a trivial offense. That's a no-brainer, right? Trivial offense. Um, you, 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 you broke some little trivial thing of mine that I didn't find important. Trivial offense, no problem. I'll forgive you for that. You wreck my Maserati? Uh-uh. Not gonna forgive that. Right? So the nature of the transgression, serious offense versus trivial offense, the other aspect of this or the, the other category they put in the nature of the transgression is discovery through a third party. That is, if you find, if if you somehow were breaking my trust and I didn't find out about it from you, I found out about it from Joe over here, who through the grapevine had found out about it, and it came back to me, and you didn't fess up to it, least likely to forgive that. If you came to me and said, you know what, I really messed up, I broke your trust, I'm all at fault, I'm the one, it's all my fault, more likely to forgive. Makes sense? Makes sense to me. That's human nature. The fourth one was social cognitive variables. On the left-hand side of the chart, which is least likely to forgive, again, folks, this does not take a scientist to figure this one out. If the transgression is viewed as intentional or malicious, we are least likely to forgive it. Or... On the right-hand side, more likely to, or most likely to forgive, no responsibility attribution. In other words, it was an accident. You wreck my Maserati intentionally, I'm less likely to forgive you than if you wreck it accidentally. Somebody ran into you at a stop sign, right? No-brainer. So putting all of those things together, I have a question. If these researchers are right in what they said... If they are right in what they said, does this mean that forgiveness is only a matter of personality? You know, in my experience, and I hate to say this, but sometimes I get frustrated with people. And I say, you know what? People are going to do what people are going to do. They're going to do what they're going to do. It doesn't matter what anybody says to them. They're going to do what they're going to do. They're pre-programmed. Then I read an article about a Jewish atheist who has come up with the theory that we are, as human beings, pre-programmed and we're going to do what we're going to do. And there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing's going to change the trajectory of your life. You're going to do what you're going to do, and it's in your genes, it's in your chromosomes. Environment doesn't even matter. You're going to do what you're going to do. That's his theory. After long observation, and much thought, and no prayer, he decided that. Are he and I saying the same thing? I think there's one difference. And for me, this difference is I believe that we can be redeemed and I believe that we can change our trajectory. In fact, if I didn't believe that, there would be no reason to take the Bible at its word. There would be no reason to listen to the words of Christ and we can just totally ignore what He said in the 18th chapter of Matthew. We're going to do what we're going to do. I have hope that in fact... We're not going to do what we're going to do, that the trajectory of our lives can change, that we can make a belief in this, and that we can forgive. For the Christian, there's supposed to be a factor that overrides all other elements. And that is our relationship with Christ. Because He first forgave us. But what keeps us from that? I want to turn to 2 Corinthians Uh, 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll read verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That is called a surrendered heart. And that, I think, is the difference between those who will forgive and those who won't. And I would like to think that by having a surrendered heart to Christ, that we move the likelihood of forgiveness from the left to the right side of the spectrum as believers. Not because of personality, not because of social uh, uh, cognitive variables and so forth and so on, but because the love of Christ constrains us. Read that again. For the love of Christ constrains us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. That's saying that we as believers believe that because Christ died for us, we are moved by His love, and His love decides what we're going to do. Not chromosomes, not genes, not environmental factors, but the will of God in our hearts. The love of God constrains us. Romans 6, verses 18 through 23. I want to read that as well. Romans 6, 18 to 23. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. The love of Christ constrains us. It molds us. It develops us. It constrains us into a shape which is Christ-like. So, we have in these verses, "...being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even also now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness." Iniquity breeds more iniquity, but being servants of Christ brings righteousness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you in those things, wherever you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, a surrendered heart will be free to place its confidence in God and say, yes, that hurt. That hurt like crazy. Who do they think they are for doing that to me? Who do they think they are for having such a low evaluation of my life, of my feelings, of my interests? Who do they think they are? They had no right to do that. But Christ forgave me. And the reason He forgave me is because He loved me. Ah! So a surrendered heart understands that Jesus forgave us because He loved us. And because He loved us, He gave His life for us. So that He might redeem us. Because He loved us, He wants a relationship with us. And He brings us back into relationship with Him through that. So this hurts like crazy. But because Christ loved me and forgave me, I love this brother, this sister, this person, and therefore I can and I will, I will forgive them. Not I can, I could, I might, I will. Why? Because you, every single one of you, Each of you, maybe we could do the exercise like our brother did in his opening and put our name in here. You, every one of you, every single one of you, betrayed Christ, broke trust, sinned against Him. And yet, He forgave each and every one of you and me. And if He did that, He calls us to do the same because our hearts are surrendered to Him. refusal to forgive is sin verse 19 talks about the infirmity of the flesh i speak after the man because after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh in other words he knows how weak we are to do these things and he just has to remind us we have been made the servants of Christ not the servants of sin not through our own strength but through the blood of Christ so being yielded to righteousness brings about holiness and holiness forgives without resentment and bitterness because the wages of sin is death and bitterness and withholding forgiveness is sin. Ephesians 4.27 says, neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. When we're surrendered to Christ, we can't give place to the devil. And what does the devil bring about? He brings about, he brings about destruction, broken relationships, All sorts of evil, doesn't matter what it is. If it's evil, He's for it, man. And there's nothing more He would like to do than wreck your life and wreck mine. Nothing more. Because in wrecking our lives, He can wreck the lives of those around us. And when He wrecks the lives of those around us, He wrecks the lives of those around them. And it goes on and on and on. So by wrecking and destruction, He gets lots of enjoyment neither give place to the devil. Hebrews 3, 7 through uh, 4, 2. I want to read that because it is very pertinent to this. It talks about a people who had a hard heart. In Hebrews, the thir- third chapter. Here we go, beginning at verse 7, 3 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear His voice, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. We know the story. Children of Israel, God brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Does wonderful things in Egypt, incredible things. Brings them across the Red Sea. Dries it up. They go across. uh, Drowns all their enemies in the sea. Off they go into the promised land where land that flows with milk and honey only. They didn't believe God that He actually was going to do that, and so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies off. Then God says, bring you into the land of milk and honey. Here we go. You ready for this? But during that time, they hardened their hearts so provocatively that God couldn't stand it, and they paid the price for it. And so this writer is talking about that. As the Holy Ghost says, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Listen to Him. He's not trying to do things for your destruction. He's not the devil. He's God. He's not trying to destroy your life. He's trying to put it back together. Let Him put it together. You're not going to do it. You know what the what, what, Anybody remember what the uh, definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome? But that's what we do. Didn't work last time. Didn't work the time before that. Hasn't worked the last 100,000 times I tried to... It's going to work this time. No, it isn't. Don't harden your hearts. Listen to God. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they always do err in their heart, and they have not known my way. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest." Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we were made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginnings of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but they who believed not? See, there were some that believed. The spies that went into the promised land, they came back bearing huge loads of grapes and honey, and they had reports, and there were only two of them that said... It is a great and a wonderful land. It flows with milk and honey. It's a great place. And God said, let us go in and let's go after it. And the rest of them said, oh, no, there's giants in the land. No, and God's just little. He can't overcome. That's what they were saying, essentially. That was unbelief. That's unbelief. For someone they had heard did provoke, Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt, To whom did He swear that they should not enter into His rest, but they that had believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Why can we not enter into forgiveness? Unbelief. We have hardened hearts. We don't listen. God says, forgive, and we say, Ah, Boy, that's a tough one. Yeah, it is tough. It is tough. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them. They weren't listening because their ears were stopped and their back was stiff and they turned their back and they wouldn't listen to God and they paid the consequences. Anybody paying the consequences today? Yes, we are. Because we will refuse to forgive. But the word preached did not profit them, being, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. God somehow can handle it, but we don't think He's big enough. He's only this big. And the problem we have is this big. So how can God this big solve a problem this big? Can't do it, can He? Not when your God is this big and made of stone or wood or something. But what about the God that holds the universe in His hand? Does He have the answers? Can He solve a problem? Can He hold you up and give you value even though that person just devalued you by doing what they did? And can you therefore forgive them because God loves you and you love them and you want to be like Jesus? That's what he's saying. This isn't complicated. It's hard. It isn't complicated. It's hard. So, the the timing of God's forgiveness is this, Romans 5.8, but God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I see we're out of time as usual, but I wanted this to prepare us for the future to reinforce what we already know. The Romans passages... Or this Romans passage for, it reinforces that God prepared for the future needs of man while they were yet sinners. And I think He gave us that as an example. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think that example to us means this. If we, in belief, prepare our hearts in advance, what does the Scripture say? What did Jesus say in that passage? <clears throat> he said, "...for it is impossible but that offenses come." In other words, they are going to happen. Why? Because you're human. Because they're human. Because I'm human. Because we're all human. We all suffer from the same problem. Selfishness. Self-centeredness. Confusion. Anger. Lack of empathy. Psychological problems. Who knows? Don't know. But the problem is that offenses are going to come. When we know that they're going to come, Can we inoculate ourselves or can we allow God to inoculate us against the coming of those offenses? We can prepare our will and mind, set up the defenses of our agape love as God did, so that when offenses come, they are stripped of their ferocity, skinned of their indignity, deluded of their energy, drained of their pain, such that when they reach our hearts, they are reduced from a roaring lion, inducing fear and pain and bitterness to a spitting, hissing little kitten, inducing empathy and understanding in us and a response of God's love in return. That's easy to say when we're talking on a sunny Sunday morning, isn't it? Sunday, Sunday morning, sitting comfortably in the pews, smelling the dinner in the basement and thinking about a a comforting day ahead of us. But what if we were in Gaza right now or if we were in Israel on the 6th of November or in any number of countries where people are killing each other because, I don't know, they've always been killing each other because of the hatred of mankind for each other, because of past transgressions that were unforgiven, because of institutional uh, uh, and, and uh, the word is not coming, bitterness that is passed from genera- generational bitterness that goes from generation to generation. Is it possible for us to prepare our heart and mind and will and set up the defenses Of love as God did. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, one of my favorite passages. Seeing that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run. Let us run. He talks about in that passage. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that phrase, for the joy that was set before Him, I think we have to remember in times of bitterness and disappointment and hurt. Who for the joy that was set before Him, it was because of Christ's vision for what was coming down the pipe, what He knew to be true, and his commitment to what his father had had given him to do. It was because of those things who for the joy that was set before him, not in this circumstance, not in tomorrow's circumstance, not in the pain and, and sorrow and suffering and rejection that he had, but the joy that was set for him beyond that. For that, he endured the cross and despised the shame and is set now at the right hand of the throne of God. When you forgive, said Bernard Metzler, or Meltzer, a radio host, and I know nothing more about him, but he said something very pertinent here. And I want to close with this. He said, when you forgive, you in no way change the past, but you sure do change the future. Brothers and sisters, let us change the future. May God add His blessings.